0: Hi there, Michael Zuber. Thanks for listening to the One Rental at a Time podcast. Did you know that the book One Rental at a Time is now available on Audible? Yes, to all my podcast listeners out there, One Rental at a Time is now available on Audible. Go check it out and please leave a five-star review. Have a great day. Hey everyone, it is Thursday and you know what that means in our expert series. That means we bring back Jonathan Twomley.
1: How you doing, sir? I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. Well, it's Thursday. That means you and I get lucky and we get to talk about new unemployment claims and continuing claims when we start. So
1: uh, did you see the numbers this morning? I did indeed. Yeah, yeah what, so, uh
0: what did you think? What was your first read? Well, I mean,
1: you know, there it, in the in the new normal, it's continues to be under nine hundred thousand, which yep. is better, right? It's less <laughs> it's less bad less bad than it could be. Yeah. Right. Um But the trend is again, you know, it was a little bit higher than expectations from economists. So that's not good. They thought things would be a little bit better. Continuing claims have gone up. Yeah, that's the one that I watch. That's the
0: problematic. And just so we know, in case you haven't seen the numbers, uh, they came out this morning. 884,000 was the claims for the week, new claims. Expected 850, as Jonathan said, missed it. Uh, but continuing claims, they were expecting sub 13 million and they came in just shy of 13.4 million. So I would call those
1: both a miss, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, it sort of continues the the fact that, the, you know, we had a period of time where the, un, the new unemployment claims were dropping pretty rapidly. Precipitously. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and the continuing claims were trending downward. Mm-hmm. Now we've hit a place where we're kind of plateauing. Right, or the rate of change has slowed down. I think and,
0: that's
1: fair, yeah. Um, and that's you know what you and I have said we expected to see mm-hmm. uh, over time as the the low-hanging fruit that comes from just bringing people back to their jobs like to the restaurants that reopen and stuff yep. like that. That low-hanging fruit uh, you know you could rapidly decrease the the numbers by bringing back that but what now but you reach a point where you run out of the low hanging fruit Mm -hmm. and now it's, you know, the stuff that's permanently businesses permanently going out of business or, you know, the, the people that, as we both expected, the corporations that are taking advantage of this situation to not bring people back and make make them permanently unemployed because they just, they're going to go for automation instead, or they've just, you know, We've had a very long period of a robust economy, and that usually results in fat accumulating within companies correct and that then the opportunity when you have a recession is to you know get more from less, so you let go of all the dead weight and you make the people that stay work more and yeah. uh, and that's you know how how it works so uh, I think we're seeing some of that as well, and um, we haven't really reached a point where the unemployment numbers look really good before say we have a second wave in the fall yeah uh, as as may i think you know i still think it's pretty likely that it's happening I, i'm certainly personally assuming that we're going to have a second wave a second round of quarantines and mm-hmm. lockdowns uh and i'm just preparing for that myself so um you know, hopefully I'm wrong. I'd love to be wrong, but, um, but I, but I just think that the reality is when you start bringing kids back to school, start, you know, uh, sending people back to, back to work, it's just going to result in, in more cases. And, you know, we've got, you know, I don't know if you're following the Sturgis story, but it seems like the the Sturgis (laughs) event could turn into a super spreader event. I think, I think it's still, I mean, the is still out for me. I saw an article about how you know, two hundred sixty thousand cases could be traced traced back,
0: but, yeah. But that, that
1: seemed to be like that seemed to be like sort of economists speculating about what could be, rather than any actual real. Yeah, I read the same thing. It it, it,
0: it caught my attention. It, it, I think the article I read talked about twenty percent of new cases can be traced back to that yeah. you know that that motorcycle event. And then I read the article. I'm like, you are making so many assumptions and
1: connections. Yeah. That, it was all just based on a statistical model that right, yeah, could so, happen as opposed to any actual real tracing, nevertheless, you put five hundred thousand people together who aren't wearing masks, and you're going to have some it's, it can't the, the effect of that cannot be zero right no exactly it's be something uh, yeah, just exactly. how big it is we'll see but i think <clears throat> well I, th- I think that's something
0: we're going to have to watch because the thing that again we're, this is all happening right we, we I think we talked two weeks ago about North Carolina right coming back to, to, to classes and then suddenly have yeah. to going online yeah uh, The one thing I like that they're doing in universities is they're keeping the kids there because unlike Sturgis, people went home right right here they're keeping the kids localized there. right in their dorms, right. so they don't infect you know it doesn't spread like that so yeah we're making you know, better decisions i think
1: it's interesting the you know it's it's funny that this is played out this way because over the summer when I was in upstate New York, I was talking to a friend up there about Cornell mm. and he was telling me that Cornell had actually run some analysis and decided that it that fewer infections would result if they brought the kids all to campus and kept them there Mm. than if they didn't and and everybody's sort of making fun of them yeah for like this is this is silly and self-interested and obviously they're just bringing kids to campus to pay and stuff like that but i think that maybe this is true like if if the kids you know get infected and you keep them there they're not going home and spreading it to more people. Yeah. It stays generally speaking with
0: the healthiest age group as well. Right. So it's, it's, we got to take the risk of death off the table. Um, I think that's a good move. I think Cornell, I mean, I get the argument, right. Kind of self-serving, but you know, now we're in it. I think, I think, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty astute observation. So good for them. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit, put unemployment, pull the health crisis away from us. There's something that has come to my attention. I just think we need to talk about, right? Both of us are investors. What makes you and I different than most is we have both made hard decisions in the past to sell. And more importantly, not only sell, but also not buy, right? There there are talk tracks out there. there, And this goes from stocks to Bitcoin, to gold, to oil, to, you know, single family home, to apartments, to all of them. Some people are out there and they're always saying it's time to buy, no matter what the data says. And that mindset I believe is toxic. I believe it's wrong. I believe it hurts people. And that's one of the reasons I reached out to you way back in the beginning because that first interview we did where you sold your portfolio. I'm like, that's a guy I can get behind. Uh, And I just think we need to realize, I think people need to hear that it's not always the right time to buy anything, whether it's an apartment, Bitcoin, gold, stocks. Um, Are you seeing, do you see it the same way? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, look, it, it, it's a balancing act because it, you ha- on the one hand, if you're not in the market, you can't make money, right? Mm. So you can't make money by never buying, sure. right? Uh, and so that's, so you have to keep that in mind on the one hand. On the other hand, as, you know, as Warren Buffett says, you know, it, m- making money is hard and losing money is easy. Right? It, it <laughs> I takes, love that. It takes it takes a long time to make money, but it can be lost very very quickly. And a cent, basically, a lifetime of great performance yep. can be wiped out by a single bad deal or That's a single true. bad performance. Yeah. Right? Maybe if your portfolio is big enough, you know, one bad deal is not going to kill you. But it's if you you really can, it's much harder to make money than it is to lose money. And so you have to really, especially when the market is is tight. Uh, you have to really be thinking, I think, more than anything, about your downside risk. And, yes. and 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 this is, I mean, humans in general have a bad time assessing risk. They tend to, hmm. uh, they tend to assign more risk to dramatic events and recent events than True. is necessary. Decency so, for virus. instance, yep. after a big, after a plane crash, people are afraid to get on planes, even though statistically there's no. Uh, there's no difference in the risk and it's actually a very low risk activity. Um, but it's, but it's spectacular. It's in the news, but like car crashes, which are much more common, uh, people aren't afraid to get into car, you know, to a car because they're not seeing car crashes on the news. Right. They're not, there's their perceived risk is lower. Uh, you Mm -hmm. know, terrorist events, whatever, you know, your chances of getting involved in a terrorist attack are about the same as getting, you know, eaten by a shark. And people are very afraid of both of those things. Um, even though your chances, you know, like if you're afraid of that, you probably should just never leave your house and walk <laughs> down the street because getting hit by a car is, much, is a much higher yeah. risk, right? So, uh, so I think what happens with investments is that people also see, they watch the markets and they see the markets going up for a very long time and they, that they find it very difficult to perceive of them going down Mm-hmm. And and then especially what we have in the last, you know, 10 years in particular, maybe really the last 20, and especially in the last, you know, six months, and you and I have ranted about this, mm. is that the government is doing the best job it possibly can mm-hmm. to take risk out of the market, you know, to support the markets. Yeah. And the problem with that is that they can do it for a period of time yeah. but at some point the juice just runs out right it just stops working and yeah. then what you have is uh you know an even worse financial panic because people suddenly realize like wait a minute the government can't support us and now there's nothing they have no more arrows in their quiver and mm-hmm. oh my goodness uh now's the time to panic sell and so uh, but you can't predict the timing of these things either. So, so the, the thing is that people uh, it, it's very easy for people to then get into the mindset of it's always the time to buy, because you know, if it's good times, it's the time to buy. If it's bad times, the government's going to come in, it's going to step in and make it good times again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes people complacent. And I think it, it leads people to overpaying and it leads people to uh to, to not understanding the risks or just discounting the risks or deciding there there are no risks. And yeah. I'm hearing a lot of this in the multifamily sort of scuttlebutt right now where yeah. people are people are, have become very complacent because of, you know, well, in, in, in March when COVID hit, everybody did the right thing and they all yep. hoarded cash and they said, we don't know what's coming, so we're going to prepare for it. And then what happened was We had six months of the government, you know, paying people a a lot of money Mm -hmm. and that allowed them to pay their rent. And so everyone went, oh, and so I've I've seen the complacency build up. I have, I talk a lot with my colleagues and I I, I can see the change in attitude Mm -hmm. that has gone from, wow, we really better prepare for this to everything's fine, (laughs) twisting ahead, Uh, Because they've been lulled into a, I think, false sense of complacency because of all the money that's out there. But this money is running out, right? The money is running out. The Congress is not doing anything to put more money into the system right now. The Democrats and Republicans can't agree. Um, You know, the president put together this, this extension on his own through executive action, which mm-hmm. is of dubious legality, but nobody's going to challenge it because it kind of benefits everybody. It's in nobody's mm-hmm. interest to challenge it. Yeah. So it's going to happen, but that's also running out. right? Yeah. I actually didn't weeks. realize how, sh- how short yeah. that was. It's only
0: four or five weeks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's extended things a little bit. Uh, the latest <clears throat> plan that the Republicans have put out, uh, <clears throat> which is apparently a non-starter with the Democrats. Yeah. How sad is, is
0: that? How sad? The skinny deal is a non-starter. I think that is sad beyond belief.
1: Yeah. It's, it's just not going anywhere. So, and that's all, but even if it, even if it were enacted, it reduces the unemployment, the supplemental unemployment to $300 extra a week. Yeah. Which right. is so, one
0: way to look at it, but also it goes up from zero,
1: <laughs> which is where we are. Well, yes, that's true. Except that we've had this extension, yes. right? So we had this sort of stopgap from, yeah. from the executive. So it's, but, but the thing is what we, here's the problem. We don't really know what effect any of this is having yet, right? We don't know. Yeah. We haven't seen the, the data for September rent collections, or I, I haven't anyway. I should go look for this yeah. to see if it see what the impact of the money running out has been. You know, through August it was fine, but it, it ran out in August, and so. Well, also
0: that, on top of that, the CDC thing that our president put in act is also well, going to be a problem.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that next. But um, the but we still don't know. We like you and I have been saying for a long time there's been this false sense yep. of security created by all Correct. this extra money in the system but now the money is run out and we don't know what the effect is we don't know Agreed. So, say for instance how much money people have banked in anticipation yep. of it ending right yep. we don't know uh you know how many people are you know not getting any more money and have spent all their money right mm-hmm. we we don't really know how this is playing out yet and until you have see, as an investor I want certainty. It doesn't have to be good news. I just have oh. to know what the news is, right? Totally because agree. Yes. whatever the news is, that I can use that to inform myself mm-hmm. in investment decisions. Agreed. Right? The problem is when I don't know what the, what the news is, then it becomes impossible to, to pick a direction. Great. Right? And, and I think, um, but a lot of people have taken all the good news to mean, oh, it's only good news. I mean, you look at the stock market, it's had some Rough spots recently, which I think are reflecting the fact that people are starting to get a little anxious about where mm-hmm. where we are, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. there's there's a sense that you know the stock market is overvalued and maybe the the kind of like trying to just invest before the next guy does and take advantage of, yeah. of him, like that. The greater fool. Of, the greater fool may be sort of running out now. I think people are starting to feel like that, like okay, this has gone on for a while mm-hmm. and and maybe it's not going to go on for that much longer now. Um, So, but in in the real estate world, all I'm seeing is full steam ahead, and it's reflected in the the latest reports on pricing. Um, Yeah. You know, multifamily is only down, uh, I'm going to pull this up, um, but multifamily is, so since uh, pre-COVID, multifamily prices are only down by 8%. Mm. And that's actually only a 3% reduction as compared to last year, right? So Mm -hmm. the, um, and manufactured homes, so mobile homes are actually up 10% since last year and they're up 3% from before COVID. And I, you know, and I think, um, you know, this is really running on the assumption that these assets do well in recessions, which I think is a, an oversimplification at best Mm -hmm. and dubious at worst, right? It really depends on who your tenants are and what the local economy is grounded in. Right. And if you have, if you're investing in uh, C properties, which have more working class tenants and you're in a very sensitive, you're in a, their, their jobs are economically sensitive, then you are going to have some big problems on your property as unemployment uh, goes up and these benefits run out. But I, I think you wanted to say something. No,
0: I think, I think you're right. I, and again, this all started from the fact that it can't always be the right answer to buy. There has to be a time to sell. And a couple of things I want to say there. First and foremost, I get, I get asked to speak to lots of people on this show. And, and I say no to more, more people than you would think. Uh, because one of my questions goes like this. Well, great, I, you want to talk about whatever. Say Bitcoin, say gold, say whatever it is. I'm, I'm game to talk about anything, right? Um, but then I say, well, when would you sell? Right. When's a bad time. Right. And if, you know, I'm okay with you telling me today's a good time, but when in the last 20 years, was it a bad time? Cause I've been looking at this shit for 20 years and nothing has always been good. So tell me when the bad time is. And when somebody pontificates about this, that, and it's always good. I'm like, well, you're, we're, we're, we're not scheduling this interview because I don't want to, it's just not true. Um, yeah. and, and that, that just really bothers me. And then back to multifamily, uh, as everybody knows on my show i sold a couple in 2019 felt really good january february felt really good march and april kind of pivoted like we talked about about, about a month ago going hmm maybe things get a little bit better right because you know fresno's going to see a population increase is my new thesis which i didn't see before right it's a suburb of some very expensive markets and i'm like huh and now i see back to what i'm what i'm calling stupid money come in for apartments in fresno the inventory is so low mm. you know we're seeing cap rates on a couple of deals sub five and Fresno's a second tier city which historically meant it's a six and a half seven for the good stuff so I, I mean i guess it's a lack of inventory and some hot money that just feels like it has to be placed but you know that hot money it, it's I, I believe the party's gonna end badly for them and Commercial debt yeah. changes, right? Five years from now, three years, whatever, you know, is it short-term bridge loan? This is, this is, it's just not always the time to buy people, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, and again, it if you, it depends on your, your objectives, but it also depends on what you're buying mm-hmm. and, and why you believe it's good. Uh, I mean, like I'm involved in a deal right now. We've talked about this before. Yeah. And I. I agreed to become involved in this deal because I thought it was positioned for the downside okay. right yep um, and and that what that means is you know it's a place where the po- the, the covid has increased the population flows right it's receiving more population because mm-hmm. of covid Yep. Um, it's kind of like the best asset in the market, so it means that means the 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 people who live there are more likely Seek to it. be able to work from home, yep. right? They're not going to be the first fired, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as, as things worsen if they worsen. So those things give me comfort that the asset, look, it may not hit the returns that we're hoping for, but it's also, I think, not going to lose anybody money mm-hmm. because that's it's positioned to be resilient right but right. not everything is positioned to be resilient like certain markets are not going to be resilient right. certain assets are not going to be resilient because uh you know because of the way that they're positioned and who their who their their tenant base is mm-hmm. so if you go out and you make blanket statements like multifamily is always good in a recession or c properties are good because they're cheaper um <laughs> I mean, you and I both have, have experience with C properties (laughs) No, and even in the best of times, they can be difficult to, to operate and and get your rent out of tenants. So uh, when you're having uh, hard times, they are not, just because they're cheaper doesn't mean that they're better. And I, I see the same thing happening. I mean, it's interesting that mobile home parks are receiving so much uh, interest at the moment because they do have they they tend to have a really, you know, sort of lower end of the economic scale uh, tenant base, right? Yeah. I, I guess the thing that what I keep on hearing from investors in that space, what what keeps them, uh, you know, allows them to sleep at night, is that since the tenants own those homes and the homes are almost impossible yeah. to move anywhere, fixed, yeah. that they will, you know, come up with the money one way or another, and and the I guess the pad rents are also not so expensive that it's a huge stretch for them to come up with the money. Yeah. But you know, renting being able to pay $300 for to rent a pad is is not the same thing. It's, it's it's a far easier thing to do than come coming up with, you know, like the C property in your market may still be renting out for eight or 900 bucks a month. For sure. Right? Yeah. And cuz that may that may be the cheapest rent in in the marketplace. But that's, that's a lot of money for people to come up with when they're unemployed or when their hours have been cut or whatever the the case may be. Uh, So, um, or, you know, one, one of the the spouses loses their job. Uh, So you really have to get in, in times like this, if you're intent on investing in these properties, you have to get very granular with who is there and and where they're employed and how sensitive those employers are to the economy. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's just not a simple proposition of it's always a good time to buy.
0: Yeah, it's just not. And again, if you're going to come on my channel and you're going to want to talk about this or that, if your answer is always it's a good time to buy, we're going to have a very difficult time scheduling your meeting, which means it's not <laughs> going to happen. Um, but back to actually, manufacturing
1: home, go ahead. Oh, <clears throat> no, I do actually wanted to bring up, uh, well, I'll bring this up after you ask your question.
0: Yeah, the, the one thing i on manufacturing home, again, I haven't talked to anybody that's done that in a while, but I think it sort of goes back to my thesis of quite simply space is good. It'd be interesting to see who's moving there because again, that's some type of ownership, right? Right. Uh, And you're right. The pad rent is less than, you know, rent for a a C-class apartment. That's probably side by side and you're packed on top of each other. So it might just be the trend. And it's just the lowest, the lowest thing somebody could buy. I guess. Possible.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you assume that this is the same thing is happening all across the economic spectrum, right? Exactly. Everybody who can afford to do it.
0: Yeah. They get in where they can, right?
1: we get in where they can. Yeah. Yeah. So, One other thing that I wanted to, to bring up, we didn't talk about this in the, in the pre-call, but, Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you saw this pop up the other, in the last couple of days that now something like 52% of young Americans now live with their parents.
0: I saw that millennials moving home. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And this is something that I've been talking about for a while as people, you know, before we got into COVID when the economy was super hot and I was saying to people, look, you're, you're overpaying for assets now. Yep. And, uh, in a recession, this is going to, you're basically increasing your risk of what happens to you during a recession. Agreed. And people would say, but you know, multifamily always does well in a recession because people can't afford to buy houses or they're going to, and see properties do well because people are going to look for cheap rent. <sighs> and you know, the, the fallacy with this argument, which I've always said is that, you know, yeah, I and, and, you know people, people always need a place to live. Yes. People need a place to live. However, that doesn't mean that they need to live in your apartment and pay your rent. Exactly. Right? It means that they may be living with their, you know, they need a place to live, but that could be their car, it could be under a bridge, it could be with their parents. Yep. Right. So uh, it could be in a different city that's cheaper
0: exactly. to, to
1: live in. Right. Location. It could be yep,
0: that's a big one.
1: Somewhere somewhere else. Right. But the parents, you know, is going to be a big thing. Or their friend, they're going to move into their friend's apartment <laughs> mm-hmm. and split the rent. Or right? their friend's
0: house. Or their people, friend's house. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Space is good. Back to that simple thesis.
1: The point is that if, if 52% of millennials are living at home now, mm-hmm. and this is the first time this has ever happened, this, this means that, you know, that the rent is too damn high. Remember? Yeah. I mean, remember the rent is too damn high like that. And that was more than 10 years ago that that was a, you know, that was a thing. Yeah. This is the, the ever increasing rent, you know, the, the, people are paying more and more money for rentals because they say, well, rent is always, rent is rising. We're going to continue. Rent is going to keep on rising. There's no supply, whatever that, that is that kind of analysis is operating in, in a vacuum, which assumes that the whole entire world consists of, rental properties and there are no right. substitutes for rental properties. But there are substitutes for rental properties and the substitute is mom and dad. Yeah. Or your, or your buddy or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever it is. Whatever it is. Yep. And so as rents continue, you know, or the guy you work with, right? I mean, we saw this in RC properties. We saw these people having roommates, right? Doubled up. Yep. And they this is what you know, or New York City is a great example of this. As the rent has climbed in New York City, you see more and more and more crazy living arrangements mm-hmm. with people to split the rent. And of course, now that we're in a recession, a lot of those people are like, you know what? I'm out of here, I'm, done. I'm going home to mom and dad, or yep. I'm moving down south where I can only have one roommate rather yep. than four, yep. or whatever it is, right? And so um, the idea that like people are gonna be stuck paying those high rents, it, and there, or there's always gonna be somebody behind them to pay that rent. Mm-hmm is just not true. And the recession is when you're gonna find that out. And now we're actually seeing this in, in real time with real data, yeah. uh, and it hasn't necessarily reflected itself in uh, vacancies yet, but if it continues, it will. Yep. And especially if, you know, there's a huge pipeline of rental property that's still being built, yeah. right? which is going to increase these vacancy rates. And we know, we know what happens with, you know, those eight properties that come online during, you know, a a recession. Oh yeah. Suddenly they're like, Hey, you B tenants. Yeah.
0: Come on up.
1: Come on and, you know, look at all these amenities we have and we're going to charge you the same rent or we're going to give you free rent. Usually what they do to give away free rent to make the annual rent the same. Um, So look, I mean, this is not, there's no, there's no free lunch here. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Really where I wanted this conversation to be is it's not always time to buy. I see. I loved your thesis in the beginning is, is controlling the downside, right? Uh, back to Warren Buffett's it's, it's hard to make money. It's easy to lose money. When I look at my market, it's the only market I talk about in detail. I think, I think the downside risk of multifamily specifically C-class multifamily is far greater than single family homes today. Mm. And that's probably true for lots of markets. But when I, when I see the chatter, I see people out there just continually trying to raise money for multifamily of like, like there is no downside. And that just scares me to death. I feel for limited partners who are going to fall for this. It only goes up mentality.
1: Well, let's, I mean, and let's kind of restate where this came from too, yep. because a lot of people I think are, have come in late to the discussion or they, they, don't, okay. they don't have the, the benefit of, the history, sure. but you know, there's there's a, you know, there's that that, uh, that aphorism that you know you're always preparing for the last war, yeah, or you're always preparing for the last recession, yep. right. And I think there's some of that going on right now. Where what happened in the Great Financial Crisis was that, you know, be- lending standards before the crisis, lending standards on homes got so ridiculously stupid. loose, stupid, that people who they before then, never had the ability to buy homes bought homes and expanded the the homeownership rate from the long term i mean decades long yeah. average of about 65% all the way up to 70% yeah so that additional 5% of households millions of households right yeah. in a country this big bought houses that they had never would never the, have been able they to They weren't afford. qualified to buy. They weren't qualified the to general, buy. general lending standards yeah and then when the housing crisis happened and people got foreclosed on, they walked away, they didn't, they weren't able to afford, you know, they they, they had those teaser rates that reset. Yeah. And suddenly they're, you know, suddenly you're going from interest only mortgage to fully amortizing mortgage at the same time that maybe you've also lost your job, right? Yeah. And so all those people then went back to multifamily. Right? Yep. And what happened then because of that, a lot of people then took the lesson, which wasn't accurate, that yeah. it's a recession. Multifamily vacant occupancies have gone up. Yeah. Therefore, multifamily does well in a recession. I know. That was the lesson that, that they took from that yeah. experience by only viewing things in that narrow time frame yes. of a couple of years rather than understanding what preceded it, and, and what happened after. And the other thing that people have to realize is that the flip side of the home ownership rate increasing to 70% was that vacancies at multifamily properties going into the recession were at pretty much an all time high, high on an average yep. basis, right? So uh, what that meant was that if you were buying multifamily before, basically during the housing boom, if you were buying yep. multifamily, even if you were paying, even if the cap rates were compressed because your NOI was lower because vacancy was higher and you were underwriting these deals at a higher vacancy level, you basically got these assets the, at a bargain. Yeah. The, and then yeah. suddenly you got a windfall of all these people coming back Correct. into multifamily. And it, so you, you had, going into the recession, you had already de-risked those assets because you were already underwriting them at a high level of vacancy. Yes. And then you got lucky
0: right? No, luck, I'm glad you used that word. Yeah.
1: Lucky. Because again, that's exactly what I experienced. The
0: worst time being a landlord in my market in apartments was actually 2006 and 2007. It was because I was losing tenants who said, you know what? For first month deposit and rent, I could buy a house. That's how crazy yeah. lending got.
1: And I, I remember being a renter in New York City at that time. And it was the same thing. The landlords were falling over each other to give you Yes. You know, not only, I don't know, people probably, this is because New York City is a unique market. When you, in a, in a regular market in New York City, the tenants have to come up with like six months of cost ahead of time. Oh, wow. Because you've got to pay first month's rent, last month's rent, security deposit, and, which is a month's rent. And then you have to pay basically two months of rent to the broker. Oh, right? wow. Okay. So you've got to come up with a huge amount of money up front, yep. right, to rent your apartment. But what was what happened was, you know, not only did landlords start giving you like a month of free rent or two months of free rent, hmm. they also started absorbing that broker costs of oh, those two months rent. Wow. Right? So, and, and because they were desperate yeah. to get-
0: I remember. It was the worst to get th- tenants, worst thing right? today.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. they were desperate for tenants because everyone was trying to buy a house, That's right? That's crazy. So, okay. uh, so th- this does happen, right? So, yeah. that was what happened- during you know so single family was hot multi-family was was not. suffering but if you know it was yeah it was definitely like you were not paying a premium for these assets but anyway so people took the long the wrong lesson and then what they've seen since then is yes like lending standards were were tougher fewer people were buying you know housing prices got crazy so people were you know it is hard for them to catch up right but you know to buy but so people took this lesson. Oh, you know, millennials don't want to own, which is never true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, multifamily always does well in a recession. Oh, there's yeah. too little supply. So, uh, you know, rents are always going to be high because pe- the demand is always going to be there. And, and what you're seeing now, uh, belies a lot of that, right? With suddenly the millennials all want to buy homes and they suddenly have the money. Like where did, where did the money come from? They yeah. supposedly didn't have it, but now they do. Yep. Uh, you know, or they're they're moving to different places or what have you because the, the rent is too high. So I, I think that the traditional, you know, the, before the Great Recession and before people like when I first got into the business and this whole kind of mythology of what of of you know what happens in multifamily in recession developed. The the mantra was always, you know, the most important thing about for multifamily is jobs. Yeah. Jobs, 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 jobs. That's that's what is important for multifamily. And you know, that cannot be true at the same time as multifamily does well in a recession because it's cheaper, right? Those things just don't make sense. Yeah. Because people, if people don't have the money to pay rent, they can't pay rent.
0: Yeah, and they're gonna matter. go yep.
1: live with mom, they're gonna go uh, you know, move in with their friend, move in with their girlfriend. Um, so or and like we're seeing now, people who have the means because of low interest rates are like, hey, I'm going to go buy a house. I want a house.
0: This, so. this, is. I'm glad we got to this point because I believe multifamily has two things working against it today. You have the most vulnerable going to be doubling up roommates, right? So that takes yeah. a whack. But you also have the most fiscally strong going, shit, I'm going to own instead of rent. Mm-hmm. So the landlord is going to lose the top and the bottom, that's that's why I think multifamily has the greatest downside today, because you're losing both sides.
1: Yeah, and it's precisely for that reason that I would only look at B deals right now, right? Because oh yeah, it's a good point. And yeah. B deals are are still going to be a little bit vulnerable because of A's, that. Yeah, the A's and B's trying to poach the B tenants. Yep. Right. Um. But it's still, you know it's still a better asset class because you have the tenants who were, they have more cushion, Mm -hmm. right. Uh, And they're less vulnerable to, uh, to losing their jobs, but they don't have as much cushion as like an A tenant who's just going to make the decision that, okay, it's it's fiscally more sensible for me to buy right now or, uh, or I, you know, I want to buy now. So I have, I have the means to do it. The B tenants, obviously some of them can, some of them definitely can, but it's not. It's not a disproportionate amount. The way that it is with A, and you're not having the new supply come on in yeah. the B space, right? So, um, but just but you still have to be careful. You can't just again take that as a blanket statement. Oh, Jonathan Twombly says go buy B properties. Like you no. can't you can't yeah. just take. You have to really get granular and look at like the competition in the market. What's the new supply in the market? What's yes. you know who is this tenant base? What what where are they working? You know all of those things are are totally have to agree. be part of your analysis to determine that this deal is. And as I said, if you're investing now and a lot of people, you know, there are those people out there who just feel like they just never want to have money. That's not working for them. <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. If you're, if, if that's who you are or you know, like your family office is just, it's cranking out. So they just need to put it someplace. They don't want to have it all in cash. Um, you, you have to, those people who need to be investing right now, there are still opportunities and places to invest, but you really have to be thinking about what is the downside risk?
0: Yes, I agree. And
1: and just along these lines, what what you're seeing with the family office is the the very sophisticated investors are very, 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 very interested right now in preferred equity, right? Ah. Because they're willing to forego the upside that comes with common equity in return for a higher position in the capital stack and more certainty of yeah. getting not only getting their returns paid but getting their money back.
0: Yeah, getting right? yeah, so, not losing capital.
1: <laughs> yeah, so they're willing yeah. to forego all or almost all of the upside on a property right. in order to have that certainty, more secure position within the capital stack. And there's a tremendous amount. I mean, the appetite for preferred equity now is enormous for precisely this reason, mm. uh, because they're they're thinking they on the one hand they've got this money. They really need to place it. They can't just have it sitting in cash. But on the other hand, they, they want it to be more secure. Yeah. And, uh and the preferred equity tends to pay a higher coupon to That's compensate interesting. For, for that, yeah. the lack of upside. Yep. yep. So all these things, you know, are, are, are making the, the, those family offices just really, really interested in preferred equity at the moment.
0: That's interesting. That actually tells me a lot, oh, right? yeah. I, I, The The smart money or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't paint a rosy picture. I mean, if you really look at what they're they're trading off they're, they don't see a bright future. They wouldn't be giving that yeah. up if they were yeah. all
1: rosy. Yeah, exactly. They're preparing for the downside. That's also why private money lending is also so interesting to them too because they're secu- they're secured yep. with the asset first and yep. they they they're, they're in first position and they they know that they can you know, probably their the greatest extent of their downside loss is like about a 20% haircut, eh, you know, yeah. if things if things totally you know, up. decline and they have to, and then they have to foreclose on the asset. You know, they're not losing everything, right? right. Like they're losing, they're not wiped out like the equity is. Yep. So they're, they're, and they're willing to take that risk, uh, of interesting, uh, of that, that haircut.
0: Yeah. Man, this is always fun. I always look forward to our Thursday conversations. Uh any closing comments? Uh do you want to talk about your new course that you just released? I saw it's, it's Actually, out, I think.
1: Before we talk about that, it's, out, sure. uh, it's not quite out yet. It's all oh. it's coming. But the we, we didn't talk about the eviction moratorium.
0: Oh, let's talk about that. Yes, sorry. Yeah. CDC. Yep.
1: Yeah. So in in like another episode of like Bizarro World 2020, <laughs> yeah. um, this the CDC who who knows that the CDC had power to to I do this, no idea. Uh, which I think is again sort of, it's one of, uh, yet another one of these things that is dubious, but only in this case, probably more people will challenge it. There are people who are interested in challenging it. But the CDC, you know, enabled by the president, has now created this eviction ban, yeah. uh, which is just, you know, I find it bizarre on so many levels. Um, but the upshot is that now we have, you know, the the CDC exercising some power under the umbrella of the executive to people prevent people from being kicked out of their apartments. However uh, I I do think that this is a little more narrowly tailored than some of the other eviction bans. Certainly. So, which is, I guess, I guess a good thing um, if, if the States could be made to follow these guidelines as well where people have to prove that um, that that they can't, that, that they can't pay, they can't pay because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And they've also tried to take advantage of all of the relief stuff that's out there and they have unsuccessfully, mm-hmm. or or even with those with that relief, they still can't pay and they can't pay because of COVID. Mm-hmm. So I think imposing those conditions is a good is a good thing. It sort of ratchets it down to something that is at least sort of fair under the circumstances. Yeah, I, I would say it's right?
0: seemingly reasonable, having read it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Nevertheless, I mean it is there hasn't been any accompanying relief for landlords to say, well, if your if your tenants meet that criteria and they can't pay Mm -hmm. uh, well, and now you can't kick them out and try to find somebody else who might be able to pay. Yeah. You know, this is um, on, on landlords uh, and and just transferring the risk to them. I think it's, yeah. yeah. One of
0: the things I wanted to say here, if, if, if this came up is, Mom and pop landlords, which I include myself in, are being asked to absorb the pain when Congress won't do their job, yeah. right? Congress didn't mm-hmm. extend the unemployment benefit, which was a thing that helped a lot of tenants pay rent. So now, because the CDC and the president, I mean, he's the one that did it. And oh, by the way, he's, a re- he's supposedly a real estate guy, which just drives me right. crazy, whatever. But anyways, he, he, he did this on his watch. And now mom and pop landlords are absorbing pain because Congress can't do their job.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, sort of like philosophically, I'm not, like, I don't have any kind of philosophical objection to the government kind of getting involved in the economy. Mm -hmm. But what I do feel is the government, let's say, if the government makes a policy decision that X is going to happen, right, then The government should bear the cost and then it should be spread out amongst the whole, all the taxpayers, right. As, as a matter of public policy, the government shouldn't be doing what it does say like here in New York, which is to say uh, the rent is too high, but we're not going to subsidize rent or do anything about it. We're just going to tell you landlords that you bear the cost. Yeah. uh, And so, and you can't raise rents and you can't kick people out. Right. So that kind of policy response is really, irresponsible and counterproductive in my correct view. it if, is if it's the sort of, of new york thing. wants to help people who can't afford housing well then we as like new yorkers should just pay more taxes for that to happen and and give them people money to pay their rent that's fine i don't really have any great objection to that personally but i but i do but i think it's and other people obviously differ with that mm-hmm. right sure. but 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 what I find objectionable is the state of New York saying, okay, we have this problem with affordability, so hey, you landlords, you're going to bear the, the brunt of this. Yeah, me uh, too. Because we can force you to, and we're not going to help you, uh, and we're just going to shift the whole burden onto you. Like that that just strikes me as being unfair.
0: No, oh, yeah, it's unfair. It. What what they did with it. So the CDC thing, and you know, compared to other moratoriums that I've read about, and again, I'm in California, so we've had them since freaking March. Um, it's everyone. Uh, you are, generally speaking, addressing the small, the lower end of the income stack because there are income limits, mm-hmm. right? 99 grand single, uh, 198 grand couple, right? Um, right. So there, this is narrowed bed. What I did like in it is it does give me the ability to evict a problem tenant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, much narrowly focused in California, right? California yeah. for four months, I couldn't evict anybody. Even if you were a documented drug dealer, yeah. right? The courts were closed. I couldn't do anything. Right, so they they they've given me outs for problem tenants, Um, but yeah, I I think I think the government came in and picked winners and losers. I think I think mom and pop landlords, many of them are going to go nine months without a check, and they're going to lose their properties. I think we will see some mom and pop landlords, a, lose and then B get so frustrated they'll sell, and we're going to have less inventory, rent control. What happens? Less inventory. We are going to have less rental units exactly when we want rental units at the end of this. And it's because of bad policy.
1: So, yeah. Well, on that happy note. Yeah. (laughs) um, Yeah. So just, just, so I do have, uh, as you mentioned, thank you for bringing it up. Um, I have a mini course coming out very soon on how to get brokers to show you those, those backroom deals. I love Uh, the title
0: backroom deals. That's, that's sexy. Good job.
1: That's what you want. I mean, you want the backroom deals. Yeah. Cause those are the, those are the best deals and they're, They're hard to get when you're new, but not impossible. And I have a methodology that, that works. I've used it myself. I've taught my students to do it. It's worked for them. Uh, Doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to find deals that work for your criteria. That's, I don't want to create a misconception. These are not necessarily cheap deals, you know, but these are the best deals in a broker's pocket. The ones that, that, that they only show to their best clients, Uh, you know, may still be market rate, but uh, these, are, these are the best ones, right? Yeah, you need so, attempts.
0: That's what you need in this business. You need that's right.
1: Type. So if you, want, if you want to get in with brokers, if you want to uh, learn how to build relationships with brokers in a way that really works, right? Ignore all the guru crap about how mm-hmm. you go after brokers and, and do the thing that has worked for me and worked for my students. This mini course uh, is going to show you how to do this. Now, this should be available in the next couple of weeks. Um, if you want to learn more about this, Uh, The course is basically done. It's just the the tech stuff is taking a little extra time because my tech person got pneumonia. So she was out, but she's back fortunately. So she's working on this, getting it all ready for you guys. Um, And if you want to uh, learn more about this, I am posting about this in my Facebook group, um, Multifamily Investment Community. Uh, Also, Michael, I I don't know if you realize this, I actually have a second Facebook group now, Mm. which so Multifamily Investment Community is all about learning, right? This is a, networking and learning group. You cannot post deals. You may not talk about your business. Like you can't solicit business in this group. It is purely learning and networking. Cool. But lots of people wanted to be able to to do that, to post deals, to be able to promote their business. So I created a second group. It's a sister group called Multifamily Dealmakers Community.
0: I did not know that.
1: Where you are allowed within, you still have to follow the rules, but you are allowed to go and post deals, promote your business, Uh, and and what have you. So uh, both of those groups, um, you'll be learning about this program when it's ready to go. Um, But I encourage you to to join both. Very cool,
0: Jonathan. I will look up that second group. Thank you for that information. You have a great week and uh, take care. You too. Thanks. Thanks again.